0: Welcome to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm Andrea and my guest today is Chandra Crane. Chandra is an author, speaker, and multi-ethnic specialist who is passionate about diversity, identity formation, and family. In this episode, she shares her story of growing up in a multi-ethnic home and too often feeling the otherness of never quite fitting in. Chandra candidly shares about the pain of her mixed heritage but also how her journey has led her to discover her unique sense of identity and calling. We also talk about her new book, Mixed Blessing, that explores what scripture and history teach us about ethnicity and how God is honored in the multi-ethnic body. Listen in as Chandra shares her story welcome to the Her Story Speaks
1: podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.
0: We had a little technical difficulty but we got that <laughs> figured out. So we will, <laughs> we will go ahead and dive into learning just a little bit about you before we dive into your story. So can you tell us and my listeners who you are just in your day-to-day life, where you live, what you do, those sort of things?
1: Sure. So I am... Uh, multi-ethnic, multicultural woman. I live in the Deep South. I was raised in the Southwest in New Mexico, but am now transplanted to the Deep South, uh, just outside of Jackson, Mississippi. And I work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I actually just got a promotion, which is exciting. So I am now the mixed... Thank you, thank you. I'm the mixed ministry coordinator for multi, multi-ethnic initiatives, which is exciting. So, um, cultivating and gathering and uh, putting together the resources that our staff across the country, our university staff, can utilize to care well for mixed students and faculty, um, to engage them in questions, uh, especially questions of identity and biblically what it means that Jesus uh, was and is mixed and equipping them to do, to do that good work that I did for the last 15 years on campus. So, um, and you're also a
0: mom, you're a mom to Mm -hmm. two daughters as well. Like I've got two daughters daughters myself. So how old are yours? Um,
1: six and 11.
0: Okay. I have an 11 year old daughter also. So yes. Are you guys navigating like learning at home or what are, where are your girls at with the whole school thing?
1: Um, they are currently in school which is a, a matter of prayer, right? There's a huge privilege in being able yeah. to send them to school. We, we feel like we've done everything we can to not spread, to not be a part of the spreading of the, the pandemic, but also um, for mental health, uh, both for our girls and for us. My yes. husband and I are both working out of our home. Yeah. Um, they, they thrive in school in a way they didn't when we were doing virtual. Yeah,
0: same with that little it's, crowded. I I understand same with <laughs> us it's a lot to navigate and it's it's figuring things out as we go so much mm-hmm. of that. So you've been busy yourself writing and releasing a book that just came out recently called Mixed Blessings and or Mixed Blessing and we'll talk about that before we dive into your story. I knew I wanted to bring this up so I just because you've already used that term I do want to talk about mixed Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that that is the term that you use otherwise I probably wouldn't use that term because you bring this up in your book because that in the past kind of has been a term like you don't use that to describe people so I appreciated that you highlighted that will you talk about that talk about that just a little bit before we dive into our conversation because if we use that term I just want to prepare people here's why you used it and that's okay for you being a multi person
1: sure I think I think like with all language and terms um uh, I heard a talk recently by a woman, um, actually a woman who is very liberal, who works or used least, at least used to work for Fox News. And she was saying rather than being politically correct, being, oh, shoot, I forget the term she used, but being kind, basically mm-hmm. asking people what language they would like so that it's accurate and so that it is honoring to them. And I think for those of us who are believers in Christ, that's even more urgent to give up our right to use whatever language we want and instead to humble ourselves, following in the footsteps of Jesus to see people as they are and as they would like to be known. So as you mentioned, mixed has um, some ugly connotation in the past, I think it is really empowering to reclaim that term. One of the authors that I studied to write the book, Brian Bantam, he wrote a book called Redeeming Mulatto, and he is black-white mixed, black-white multi-ethnic, biracial, and in it he said that for him, redeeming it was an act of power, Mm. uh, an act of of dignity, an act of saying, um, I get to take something. and. And see what those who intended for evil, God has intended for good. So I really love digging into that that work of redeeming the the term mixed. That doesn't mean everyone likes it uh, or uses it. Who is multi ethnic? In the same way that some folks prefer um, who are of the African diaspora prefer African American. Some prefer black. Right. Um, Some of us who are multi-ethnic just prefer to use that term, which I think is is part of the journey, right? Figuring out what a person would like to be called and how they would like to be seen. But for me, I love the ambiguity and the liminal uh, aspect of it, that it is fluid and it is something that I can embrace and say, I am a mixture of certain things. I am not just a math equation, I am not easily defined mm-hmm. or pigeonholed or pegged. And so for me, it is. it has been a really powerful thing just in the writing of the book to really lean into the, the word mixed. But like I said, for some people, that's just not where they w- want or what they're headed into. And, and that is part of the honor of being part of a very diverse community right. is saying they get to choose how they would like to be seen and referred to.
0: Okay. Thank you for clarifying that and explaining to listeners, because I think that's really important. Um, excuse me. Your book is just so important. And <laughs> Thank you. We'll dive... I mean, we'll talk more specifically about your book towards the end, because you do share some of your story in that, which we'll dive into. But I just want listeners to know that your book is just not, is not just geared towards people that are multi-ethnic or mixed. It is for people that are white too, to to understand. Like, I I feel like before I read your book, I was just so oblivious to so many of the dichotomies and tension Mm -hmm. that multi-ethnic people face. I am almost embarrassed to say, I just thought, well, that is just so cool that they have that in their lineage and that they can explore so many parts of their ethnicity. And I just never took into account the struggle with that. So I think like all stories, it gives us just a glimpse into what other people are facing and empathy and in a greater understanding. So I thank you for that. And for the. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Well, and let me throw out there that Mm -hmm. my editor and some other mixed friends really pushed me to write the book for mixed people Mm -hmm. to not address monoethnic folks directly so that you can come into it in a position of listening Um, both monoethnic minority and majority but I'm so glad that it's speaking to the number of monoethnic folks that it's speaking to because I think that's very honoring because being mixed is not what is jumbled up or what is off, right? It's trying to navigate a monoethnic world. So right. I think that means a lot to us to be seen and for someone to come and humbly sit and listen. Um, yeah. is part of its power to tell yeah. those stories.
0: Yeah, and I as I I mean selfishly I don't want to center myself, but I'm just trying to get my listeners to understand how we are all part of this story. I mean, if I look mm-hmm. at my own family in life, I have cousins that are multi-ethnic. We Mm -hmm. have done foster care and those children have all been multi-ethnic. And it's like, I never, I just, I never took that really very seriously or the depth of what that meant. So I think it just gives us such a good and under a deeper understanding of what that means. So, good. thank you. Good good. Absolutely. So, let's start off. We I kind of jumped ahead before we dove into your story. I want to start off and I don't often do this, but I think it's just so applicable to our conversation. Um I ask if you would just read the mm-hmm. first page of your introduction. So, let's start off with that.
1: So, this really sets the tone yes. for the book. Yes. Um, and for what what most mixed people face. So, what are you? So what are you, exactly? I'm asked that often. When people see my dark black and curly hair, my somewhat almond-shaped eyes, my pale skin with a yellow undertone, and yet freckles, they wonder. They can't place my ethnicity in a box, so they feel unsettled, maybe even threatened. Depending on my mood, I choose one of a few answers. If I'm feeling sarcastic, I'm human, thanks, and you. Or if I'm feeling cryptic, exotic, obviously. If I'm feeling sarcastic and preachy, me, I'm part of the Colossians 3.12 beloved community, part of God's people that he loves from the center of his being. I've also learned to play dumb, answering with my own question. Oh, how do you mean? Are you asking about my Myers-Briggs personality profile or maybe my Enneagram? Obviously, they aren't. But hoping they'll actually hear themselves, I like to make people say it. No, what ethnicity are you? Where are you from? Why do you look so different? What ethnicity am I indeed?
0: And that's a powerful introduction. And you go on to say, if I'm feeling patient, loving, and strong enough, I invite folks to hear my story. So today, I want to thank you for feeling Patient and loving (laughs) and strong enough because you are gonna share a little bit of your story and obviously just highlights of it because we don't want to give away the whole book, but (laughs) I know it's I know it takes an emotional toll, I'm sure, to share parts of your story. So I appreciate you doing that today. Can you start off with your origin story for us about your parents, the family you were born into?
1: Sure. So I am ethnically Thai and white American. My birth father was a Thai national who came to the state for college and that's where my birth mother met him things didn't work out between them so it was just the two of us my mom and i for the first five years which i I just can't give enough honor to single parents um and the task that i see that i can't even imagine but then she remarried when i was five and she remarried a black man and he became my father he adopted me he's the only father i ever knew he taught me how to ride a bike and walk me down the aisle Sadly, he passed away um, almost 10 years ago now uh, of cancer. Thank you. But he shaped me in so many ways, my sense of humor. It was funny in high school people who didn't realize he wasn't my biological dad would say, oh, I can see it. You have the same mouth, Uh, (laughs) which he he used to always say, if you feed them long enough, they start to look like you. (laughs) So So, um, as I said, I was raised in New Mexico, which is also a very borderland uh, mestizo state with a lot of intersection between different cultures. And so I grew up on the one hand with being mixed as a norm, but, on the other hand, being keenly aware that it's still there still was something of a disconnect between my family and my upbringing and what I saw around me,
0: yeah. I mean, that's so interesting because for the first five years of your life, you're just raised by your white mother mm-hmm. and you don't look mm-hmm. like her. Do you remember noticing at a young age, like, I don't look exactly like my mom, or did that even crush your radar or mind in that first five years?
1: Oh, well, I don't remember the first five years very clearly, but absolutely very, very aware from an early age because I looked um, full Asian, whatever that means. Um, So yeah, I didn't look like her at all. And I do remember as a kid, um, people just not knowing what to do with the two of us, much less the three of us. Sure. Cause sure. I look so different.
0: Do you have a memory like the earliest of like realizing ethnicity and that this is not like the majority family that I'm living in here and kind of how you started sorting that out and realizing it?
1: I don't know that I have a distinct one single memory, but I have a series of sh- snapshots yeah. of just being out in public with my parents. Um, of being at school and being asked if I knew Kung Fu, of looking at myself in the mirror and just wondering what, not what was different, but what the difference meant, what the significance of it was and not really having an answer at that point. But just thinking, why am I different? What does it mean that I'm different? Do I want to be different? Which the answer usually came back, no, at least until high school. Just wishing, interestingly, not wishing that I looked different, but just wishing that I fit in somehow in a way that I didn't.
0: Yeah. I love how you said you have the snapshots of those memories, because I think that's mm-hmm. so often what, that's what compiles our stories. We often don't have just one linear, large story. It's all those snapshots. And you, I even highlighted that, that in your book. You said these seemingly singular moments combined over the years to create an overwhelming narrative of loneliness and alienation, even when there is joy and security too. And I thought that was mm-hmm. just so powerful because you're already as a child starting to feel like. I don't fit in. Mm -hmm. I don't Mm -hmm. fit neatly in a box and you're feeling alienated. And you talk about like being asked that question in grade school. What are you? Mm -hmm. Like you said in the opening. And then you say by middle school, the question was painful, not just confusing. So can you take us back to middle school time of when you really do start to feel that pain and that tension?
1: So middle school... Demographically, especially in the United States is when the developing brain of a child really starts to notice yeah. the haves and have nots, the ins and the outs, the ways in which they are different um, and the ways in which they want to be accepted and be the same. So middle school was definitely a turning point of not, uh, of not feeling like even with the friends I had that I could really connect with them at yeah. a certain level. Um, it was also a time of thinking, what can I do? To fit in? How can I assimilate? In what ways can I, despite my appearance, prove my belonging? Um, And so, you know, in that sense, the normal aspects of wanting to dress a certain way, wanting to um, act a certain way, wanting to be able to interact with my peers, which I was somewhat successful um, because, you know, I was growing up in a bicultural home, but we were still in small town America, so right. I watched right. all the the TV shows, and I, you know, consumed all of the the preteen uh, <laughs> fashion aspects. I definitely, woo, I mean, I, I. Had the hammer pants and the stacked neon socks oh, and yeah, <laughs> and all of that. Yeah, for sure. But
0: like you said, I mean, we both have 11-year-old daughters and that is a mm-hmm. hard time anyway. If you like are the majority culture, it's hard. So having that extra layer of feeling like you don't fit in, I can't imagine how hard that must be mm-hmm. or how how hard that was for you. Did you, you talk in your book about shifting identity and code switching? Do you feel like at mm-hmm. that time that started to come into play for you? Maybe we should, for people that don't know, will you explain what code switching is?
1: Sure, sure. So code switching is, it's related to ethnicity, is adjusting one's behavior, appearance, uh, language to fit in with a certain group of people. So it's normally, it's normally talked about in terms of very different cultures, from majority culture. So black folks over enunciating their speech patterns or, and then, you know, from a stereotypical black home or Asian folks from a stereotypical Asian home choosing and wanting to not bring a different type of food for their school lunch. Right. right. And so there's actually a lot of people look at code switching as a negative, but there's actually, I think, a positive to it because in reality, everyone code switches. You know, we we speak differently when we're in a more formal setting than when we're at home. We. Right. Wear different things. Um, nobody's wearing in a in a world where you can go to the gym. No one's wearing a ball gown to the gym. Right. And so I think there's a certain aspect of it that is actually valuable and helpful. And, and we look at Paul who wanted to be all things to all people and was willing to make certain concessions right but i think the problem comes when it is forced either from the person who's doing the code switching or from the dominant culture that they're trying right. to assimilate into and also when it is something that is seen as inauthentic the thing with being mixed and growing up in a multicultural home is that's that becomes a very automatic thing. Do that on a regular basis in a way that a lot of monoethnic folks may not have to. And so it becomes just how you live and how you operate to make it make sense in the world.
0: Right, and you you're living with a white mom, a black dad and then but you're you have the thai identity too. Mm-hmm, so that's mm-hmm. a lot to make sense of and to figure mm-hmm. out. And so how did you find yourself surviving and coping during that time as you made sense of it? Was it your faith that came into play? I'm curious your faith journey and when that realization perhaps came in.
1: I actually didn't become a believer until college. Okay. So it it wasn't it wasn't a faith journey with Jesus. I did want to be Buddhist uh, at a certain point, especially. So going into high school, that's where I found my people, the drama folks and the speech kids and the debate folks and the band nerds. Um, And so suddenly being different was desirable. Being different was valuable and standing out was a good thing. So I really thrived in that way in high school, but it wasn't until my sophomore year of college where I became a Christian. And so when I started college, there was definitely a sense of longing to get in touch with my Thai roots. So my mom had lost contact with my family in Thailand when I was a kid. And so I really actually didn't reconnect with them until in my 30s. And so in college there was just this sense of I don't know what it means to be Thai and of course those who have immigrated from Thailand or those who are visiting from Thailand statistically are just a smaller group than other parts of the Asian diaspora. And so there just wasn't much access I had to what does it mean to be Thai? How does that look? How can I explore that? So I wanted to to look into more Buddhist culture, um, but Jesus had other plans, <laughs> and so when I became a believer, that, in a way, brought me to back to a more colorblind narrative, and more a sense of assimilating into white culture, and just it's it's about Jesus, it's not about ethnicity. So I was I was in that for quite some time, um, which I'm really grateful to have moved past that narrative, right, right, and and be in a place where I can really look into different parts of my ethnicity and different parts of my story.
0: So it wasn't Jesus and his story that was a tension for you. It was more so the church and the narrative that you are hearing there. Exactly. Do you mind exactly. talking about that a little bit? Because I think that's important. I spoke to somebody yesterday that has is also multi-ethnic, and she shared a little bit of that too, just that tension that we hear like being one in Christ, we're all children of God, unity, not division. Right. That is so not not helping and it's hurting. So if you don't mind maybe sharing a little of that experience and you as a mixed person, what that did to your identity.
1: Yeah. So my dad wasn't a believer until shortly before he passed. And so for uh, the first 10 years that I was a believer, he didn't attend church. Um, He would go with us on a holiday maybe. And then once I got married and moved away, when we went back to visit, he would come with us to church. um, When we visited, and he would attend church with us when he came to visit us in Atlanta and in Mississippi but he wasn't a believer. And so that meant that the white evangelical spaces I was in, it was fairly easy to assimilate because there just weren't any other folks who were different. And by then I had started to, my features had started to change and I very much wanted to be a part of white evangelical culture. So in some ways it was easy to not know what I was missing. The church was a place where the, the church that I was baptized, my first church home was very gracious and very loving and, and, and even had a lot of patience with other parts of me that were rough around the edges coming coming into faith at a later time I had I had quite a mouth on me um I probably still do but <laughs> I try to rein it in yeah I'd come out of a very much party lifestyle and so there was a lot of room for growth but Ethnicity just wasn't discussed. It was completely a separate category. There was no room for it. There was not even an acknowledgement of that's something we don't talk about. It just wasn't something we talked about. And so I didn't realize how much that was an issue until I finally came to a multi-ethnic church about 10 years ago when we moved to Mississippi and started to realize, oh, oh, that's that's what I've been missing all along.
0: And is that the point, because you do such a beautiful job in your book, of talking about Jesus being multi-ethnic, mm-hmm. and, so, mm-hmm. and so many women, especially of the Bible, being multi-ethnic, and how you saw that overlapping with your story? Is that when you started realizing and loving that part of your story more?
1: It, it was a little before that when I first read a book called Check All That Apply by Sandy okay. Fraser, that that was the first time I had heard that Jesus was mixed and that my story was not just an accident, but actually planned and actually something the yeah. Lord yeah. valued, uh, that it wouldn't be better if I had a monolithic story. That blew me away. That was the first time. So that was almost 15 years ago now when I joined staff with university, So then I was... In Atlanta for about another five years. So there was about a five-year time here and there where I was asking these questions, interacting with various people, but it wasn't in any way a structural question. It was very much an individual journey until coming into a more multi-ethnic community. So it was, it was not a community project. There weren't many resources for me to dig into it. Um, multi-ethnicity wasn't as posh and popular and as sexy as it is now. Mm -hmm. And so there wasn't much chance to explore that as a believer. There were some resources for mixed folks um, from a more secular perspective, Uh, again, whatever that means, but there wasn't really just wasn't much for that integration of ethnicity and faith. There were two very separate things that I was looking into out of necessity. Okay.
0: And like I said, in your book, and another reason why I encourage folks to read it is because you do a beautiful job of talking about Jesus. And in this white majority America, we so often paint Jesus as this white man that looks like us, and we mm-hmm. he does not. And mm-hmm. and most of the characters in the Bible are not that way. There are all are all practically. So I encourage people to look at that part of our biblical story and our white Christian narrative and what we've learned. One story, I'm gonna shift gears a little bit, because one story in the book I would love for you to tell where I think really hit me of like, gosh, I just never thought of, of that issue that you face where you share where you really felt left out, did not belong, where you were in a group and they asked you just to split mm-hmm. up at the end.
1: Yeah, I refer to it as the hallway moment <laughs> where actually at that same conference where I first read, check all That apply, we had breakout sessions. for different ethnicities. And I was completely perflummoxed. They dismissed us. And technically, I guess I had a couple different options. I could go with the Asian staff, but that was before I had reconnected with my birth family. And so that just didn't seem practical to me. I I felt very much like that would be me uh, being an imposter. And there was the white staff, which in the Sense of the theology of fundraising, which was what the breakout sessions were about. Um, I was raising support in a majority white culture, but there seemed to me to be something significant about just defaulting to that that I didn't feel comfortable with. Um, I wanted, in a lot of ways, to go with the black staff because I knew several of them already and had a camaraderie with them. And my personality is very gregarious and. And I just stood there, I didn't know what to do. I literally was standing there looking around, thinking, where do I go? And thankfully another mixed staff, my dear friend, Kyleen, um, by the time I didn't know her, she said, C- come with me, come with me to the Asian breakout room. You, you do belong here. And so I went and it was, it was a sweet time. Everyone was gracious. I did not feel, like an outsider, either in the way that I didn't fit in or the way in which I presented as mostly white. And so I was an interloper. I felt very much welcome and very much belonging, but I also felt that disconnect still of I was not raised in Asian culture. I do not understand most of it. I'm not an indirect communicator um, yeah. or or the the other stereotypes of Asian culture. I'm, I'm not great with authority or hierarchies. Um yeah. <laughs> And so it was, it was sweet, but I still left feeling like uh, I, I didn't click there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cause we all want to belong as much as mm-hmm. we want to be unique. We want to mm-hmm. fit in and belong. So what was your, and I'm sure it's all these stories together, but when did you decide I'm going, I'm going to write this book? Like I'm, em- I'm to the point I'm embracing my mixed culture and other people need to do the same and and I'm mm-hmm. going to write this book. So tell me a little bit what got you to that point.
1: So check all that apply went out of print. Okay. And so as I was haunting the book tables at every conference I went to and buying a couple of copies and then bringing them back and giving them away, I, like candy <laughs> to anyone I knew who was mixed or had a mixed family. I started saying, why did this book go out of print? What we, What can we do to get a second printing? And finally someone said, well, here's the deal. It was ahead of its time and we need a new book for a new generation. There are several ways in which the mixed story has changed and grown and become more nuanced and more complicated. And so We need someone to rise up and and write the next book. And so then I started um, harassing, lovingly harassing them. Okay, who can write it? What can we do? How can I help? (laughs) And eventually, never knowing, never, never, well, never knowing, maybe somewhere in the back of my mind, guessing, hoping, wanting. But at that point, I had done very little writing, a couple of articles for various blogs, so it just didn't seem like something I would be capable of, and so finally, though, one of my other coworkers turned to me, and Andy said, "Why don't you write it?" Which is the most terrifying, sweetest, kindest thing you can say right. Right. to someone who loves writing and loves language and did an English minor and really thinks about oh, what would it be like to write a book. The process from that, though, was at least six years from that discussion to getting to a point where I really felt like I could submit a proposal and say, okay, I want to invest my time and my energy in this. And I feel called to invest my time and energy in this. I actually got to interview Sunny for the book, uh, which was just so precious. And she really blessed me and handed the mantle down and said, I've been praying for the next person. That is wow. you. You are this next generation. Oh, it was amazing. That just it gave amazing. me chills. Like that is Absolutely. such a full
0: circles part of the story. Right.
1: Oh, right. Wow. right. Uh, it was hard not to fan girl <laughs> during our sure. conversation sure. And, and, be, you know, keep it, keep cool when I was talking with her. And I, I did gush quite a bit. Um, so that set me on that path to turning in the proposal and, you know, turning in a book proposal, is terrifying because you sure. wonder oh, what if they come back and say no, but even more terrifyingly, what if they come back and say, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: You're putting, you're putting yeah. your heart out there. I mean, you're very mm-hmm. vulnerable and you've, you've put it all out there. So I can mm-hmm. imagine either way, it's a lot of nerves bringing up mm-hmm. from that. Mm-hmm. One of um, I'm going to, read one more quote, because this one really struck me again, to be able to just empathize and walk in your shoes for a bit. And I'd like you to touch on this a little bit. You said, we mixed folks live in dissonance. We are always colonizing and being colonized, always offending and being offended, always stealing and being stolen from. That's so powerful. Can you talk a little bit about that and that feeling and experience that you've had in your life? With both
1: ends. I think there's been a lot of growth in the racial reconciliation community to realizing just how much mixed folk are people of color. It's interesting because I think in some ways there was an assumption in general that of course multi-ethnic folks are people of color, but in, at an individual level, especially those of us who present more as majority culture, a sense of this is not a safe space for you and you are not a safe space for us. And so it has really been sweet to watch mixed folks push back on that and watch monocultural minorities really humble themselves. Um, yeah. To have Jamar, I mean, Jamar and I went to seminary together. Oh, our families did. are, our families are very close. He's a dear brother. It was still unbelievable to me and so humbling to me to read his forward and for him to say, I learned, I learned That's from awesome. this sister. Yeah. yeah. It was overwhelming and precious. And I, I'm glad there are so many, stories in the book other than mine I yeah. had such a good time interviewing I think it was 30 people I interviewed um I'm so glad we got to tell our stories together yeah. Yeah. because then it is not just me because I it is a community it right. is a diverse community right. so I think it's it's been really precious to be seen more fully by mono-ethnic minorities as well as majority culture folks and I think it has, it has advanced the conversation of being able to say there is true dissonance and pain and confusion in being mixed yeah. because of how we interact in a monoethnic world, in the same way that other minorities, um, whether it's the disabled and differently abled, who are operating in a world full of able people. Um, whether it's queer brothers and sisters who are operating in a society that just assumes everyone right. is heteronormative, in a, even in a society that assumes certain things about women, right? And their roles and their capabilities and how they operate and how they want to operate. For mixed folks to operate within a monoethnic world is difficult. But one of the things that I loved researching and realizing in the writing of the book is how much when mono folks are willing to humble themselves and willing to listen and willing to empower and equip mixed folks, what a joy we have because we have a lot to teach. Mm-hmm. We have a lot to share. We have a lot of ways that we can grow the community of folks who are striving for racial reconciliation, who are striving for equality, and the church, which that those two should yes. be synonymous. They're not. Right. Right. <laughs> but but helping to be a part of growing that awareness and that conversation uh, is such a privilege, but it does require people pouring into us to be able to pour right. back into the church. Right.
0: So as a mother, you're now raising, like we said, two daughters mm-hmm. that are also now mixed. Mm-hmm. Tell me how, and like you said, your mom did the best she could as a single mom for a while <laughs> but now I'm sure you're raising them differently than you were raised. We all mm-hmm. do the best we can tell me now how you're raising your girls differently perhaps, or to embrace that part of them. I'm kind of wanting you, I guess, to speak to other parents that are raising mixed mm-hmm. children.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think one of the powerful things about being a mixed person, raising mixed kids is I do understand their story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a little better, maybe even a lot better, but more, I'm more able to understand their story than monoethnic parents, even monoethnic minorities. Um, But that does mean that sometimes I can forget that I don't quite understand their story, that they have a nuanced experience of being mixed. Right. Um, They are, to put it into fractions, which has its pros and cons, they are three quarters white American and a quarter Thai. So I married uh, a white guy with a heart for multi-ethnicity. Um, and so for them, they present, uh, as white even more than I do. Um, people can usually tell there's something different about them, but they're not sure what it is. They definitely get asked, what are you a lot? There is a freedom though, in, well, a freedom in Christ, a freedom in them being able to ask themselves, especially now that the oldest is 11. What parts of my heritage do I want to dive into? Yeah. What parts of my heritage uh, shape me and shape the way the world interacts with me? So we are all trying to learn Thai together. Uh, it is it is going fine for the girls? It's not going spectacularly for me. It's that interesting. Yes, it's a tonal language and it has five tones, so one more than wow. Mandarin. Okay. <laughs> um. Yeah. So yeah, I joy music i'm i'm reasonably musical but for whatever reason um grasping the tones is difficult but it's interesting to me to see with a christian upbringing how much more free they are ironically they're not buddhist so they can't connect in that way but i think they explore a certain freedom to say because my identity is in christ i can explore these different ethnic identities and i'm safe and it's not something to be threatened of or threatened by, or to make me feel like I'm going to lose myself, um, yeah. because I am grounded and rooted in the mixed Christ. I think that that means a lot to me as a parent to watch them. Um, it does take a lot of openness of mind, even on my part. Um, one of the reasons I included a guide for parents in the back of that. the book, uh huh, yeah. is is to start those conversations, yeah. um, and to ensure that mixed kids have the language and the space to do their own processing. Um, and like you said, no, nobody gets it right. Um, so there's definitely a question of what things am I prioritizing? What things am I hoping? What season of life are we in? Right. But it has been very special to me to see them interact with a multi-ethnic community in our church, uh, I don't know that there are, I don't think there are any Thai folks in our church. Um, and in some ways it's just bi-ethnic, it's mostly black and white, but for them to feel comfortable right. saying, oh, there are a lot of people who are different like me. Right. right. That means that means a lot. And I and think that that does take work on the part of a parent to surround their child with as much true diversity, with as much of a multi-ethnic community as possible. Right. So that they don't feel as alienated or awkward.
0: And I would say the same for parents that are majority culture that perhaps sure. have adopted um, from different races or ethnicities that it's work. Like if you want mm-hmm. to at least attempt to do this right, there's not a exact right, but what's best for your kids, it's work mm-hmm. and it's exposure mm-hmm. and getting um, them involved and exposed. And like you said, you have in the back of your book some great questions for parents, for kids, some resources, all of that. Um, and you have a study guide in the back. I mean, it's really filled with a lot. So I encourage parents, if they are in this arena of raising multi-ethnic kids, mixed kids, to get the, get the book and look at those things and the resources. Chandra, tell us where else you can be found and we will make sure to put those links in your show notes. I know we're, we're about out of time, so I want to wrap up here shortly
1: great thank you I love interacting with people on social media um I love hearing stories I love hearing people's stories that is just one of my favorite parts of of writing the book and um digging into the social media world of course there's a lot of hustle necessary (laughs) to be a woman of color publishing um a book for the first time so I'm I'm on there I was exhausted on launch day launch day my thumbs hurt my kids made fun of me (laughs) I but am sure. I just, oh, scrolling so much. But I'm available. your book just
0: came out 12-15. Yeah, yeah, so it right. wasn't very long ago at all. No, okay. it wasn't yeah.
1: It wasn't very long. So um, I'm available on Twitter at Chandra L. Crane. And same handle on Instagram or at Mixed Blessing Book. Okay. And you can visit chandracrane.com and find my link tree. And that has all sorts of links to the articles I've written, um, the, the podcasts I've been able to do. Yes um and so uh i also have a facebook page i i just love seeing people interact not just with me but with each other that's one of my favorite things is when two people find each other and start to connect over being mixed and I can just encourage them in that conversation and learn from them so yeah please come and and interact and we'll we'll ask these questions together I love that
0: as someone who also loves stories I love that you have a passion for that too and that your book Mm -hmm. shares so many so we Mm -hmm. will put links to all of that where people can find and connect with you and buy your book thank you so much for just sharing today your story and the hard parts of it and just being vulnerable in what you've talked about
1: it is an honor. I I enjoyed it, and I appreciate you using your platform to to lift up mixed voices. That means yeah, a lot. I'm
0: honored to do it. I really am. So thank you.